I'm Devorah Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. Okay, good morning. We are continuing with our class on Shimona Esrei. And uh, just um, wanted to share with you a story from the Gemara that I used to read to my kids that just um, really emphasizes the importance of Shimona Esrei and uh, some of the halachos that we know that when you're davening Shimona Esrei, obviously you are at the top of the mountain, as we said, you are you are, uh, as the Gemara says, zut filah, and it's referring to the Shemona Esrei prayer, that this is really the goal of all of our prayers, is to get to the top of the mountain where we're literally standing face-to-face, so to speak, with Hashem, and having a private entrance with the King of all kings. So, of course, we have to have the proper decorum, and one of the things we know is we stand with our feet together, And we're not supposed to interrupt our prayer by talking or motioning. This is all ideally. We're going to get into the halachas of, you know, um, what happens if there is a reason that you need to move, that you need to motion to somebody to stop something. But I want to share with you this story from the Gemara, um, from uh, the Gemara in Tainus. Hold on. Sorry, the Gemara in Brachos 32b, the source is the Talmud Bavli. So a Jewish man was once on a long journey. After a while, the man saw it was time to say his prayers, but there was no shul to be found and no houses nearby. He was surrounded by open fields. So he stood in one of the fields by the side of the road and he prayed. When he reached the Shimona Esrei, a Roman nobleman passed by. The prince came riding by on a horse with his followers behind him and his servants running ahead to clear the way. All the people who passed by the prince greeted him respectfully and honored him. His subjects were afraid of him, for they knew if they did not act respectfully, they would be punished. The Romans saw the Jewish man standing in the field engrossed in his prayers. He was saying the Shimona Esrei so intently that he did not even look up. The prince called out a greeting, but the man did not answer. The prince was angry, yet he waited and did not interrupt the man's prayer. But the moment the Jew finished, the prince shouted, Fool! Do you not see who was passing by? How dare you not greet me? If I had stabbed you with my sword, who would have saved you? Then he paused, looked at the bewildered man, and finished with a threat. I will punish you severely, he exclaimed in anger. Please, please wait, pleaded the God-fearing man. Perhaps if I explain what I was doing, you will not be angry, he said. The Roman listened. Tell me, your highness, asked the Jew, have you ever stood before the king? Certainly, answered the nobleman proudly. I have stood before the king many times. Well, asked the Jew, if a simple man or even another prince should pass by while you are in the presence of the king, And if he should greet you, would you stop to answer him, him? he asked. Heaven forbid, answered the Roman. It is not permissible to speak to anyone while standing before the king. This would be a grave insult to his majesty. 
<clears throat> and what would the king do to you if you interrupted your audience with him to greet someone? Asked the Jewish man. He would kill me, answered the prince. Do you see, explained the man. I was standing in prayer before the king of all kings, HaKadosh Baruch Hu. How could I stop to greet you? The Roman thought for a moment. You are right, he said. I can understand now why you did not greet me. The Roman was no longer angry. He did not punish the Jew, and he allowed him to continue his journey in peace. I just wanted to share with you my mother's maiden name, and this is, I actually have a few people listening from Russia, which is very exciting to me, all the way from Russia. I don't know who they are, but there's about 10 people that came up from Russia. So this is for you Russians out there. My mother's maiden name uh, was uh, an interesting Russian name. It was the name Bogomolny. Now, you can imagine growing up in St. Catharines with all the people in her class whose names were Smith and McPherson. That was not a very easy name to carry around with her. My mother said they used to call her bag of money, bag of baloney. And she always talks about how, you know, you used to get called when you raised your hand in class, you would always be called by your last name. Smith, Jones, McPherson, McGillicuddy. Anyway, whenever the teacher in a certain grade had to call on my mother, my mother said the whole year she was the second last girl in the outside row because the teacher did not want to even begin to try to say her name. But for those of you who know any Russian, it's a very wonderful name, especially in the communist country that tried to wipe out religion and Judaism. The word Bog in Russian means God. And the name Bogomolny means the one who prays to God. And the family story is that that was not their original name. But the way that they got this name was because some great ancestor, maybe a great, 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 great grandfather, was actually davening Shimona Estray when the census man was coming around to take the census. And he didn't stop. Uh, to talk to him. He just continued his davening like the story goes. And the census man said, oh, you know, just put him down as Bogomolny. Just put him down as the one who prays to God. So that is the, uh, <clears throat> the story. And it's interesting because my Bubby once met somebody with the same name. They couldn't figure out at all how they were related. But they did figure out, they did, they did have that same story in their family. This other person also told the same story about how they got the name Bogomolny. So they must have been connected in some way. Just another interesting tidbit, my grandmother's maiden name was Bronstein. And Bronstein is the same name as the famous label of Bronstein, aka Leon Trotsky. My Bubby was actually first cousins with Leon Trotsky. His, his father was her uncle. So this is also just an interesting piece of trivia of our Russian history. Now, I, I'm not saying it's any good yichos or anything, but just an interesting thing. I heard he was a great speaker. So maybe I get a little bit of talent from him. Who knows? All right. Um, <clears throat> So I just wanted to quickly review the request section, which we started and show how each uh, request that we ask follows very um, 
intelligently from one to the next, that you have to have the one before in order to enjoy the next one. So the first bracha that we ask for in the request section, if you remember, is the request for wisdom, for knowledge, for understanding. And of course, we said that this is the greatest gift that anybody could ask for, because if you have wisdom, if you have knowledge of how to live your life, uh, the beginning of wisdom is fear of Hashem or God consciousness, then you really have everything. And that is what Shlomo HaMelech asked for when he was merely 12 years old and was about to become the king of Israel. He was offered anything he wanted from a bus pool, from Hashem. And he said, I want wisdom because if I have wisdom, I have everything. So from the wisdom prayer, we go into the prayer on tshuva. Because part of wisdom is being honest with oneself, with one's shortcomings, with one's mistakes, with recognizing how much work there is to do to really realize one's potential. And so tshuva is the natural thing that happens when a person becomes, so to speak, enlightened. Now, after tshuva, we have forgiveness. Of course, we said that, you know, first we have to show that we are sincerely interested in returning to God. And then God brings us back to him and completely forgives us of everything. And from forgiveness, we go to the bracha of personal redemption. That now that we've sort of cleaned ourselves up, we ask Hashem that if there's anything left, you know, anxieties, um, depression, things that get in the way of our being able to fulfill our mission in this world, our potential, that he should remove all these obstacles and help us to uh, reach our potential and actualize it in this world. From there, we go to the bracha of refua, because we said a lot of times our illnesses and our sicknesses are caused by um, uh, emotional and spiritual flaws. And the idea that God doesn't give a person an illness unless it is going to be good for them, unless it's going to, God willing, make them more God conscious, recognize their own vulnerability, their own weakness, and um, realize that we are very, very, um, as strong as we think we are, we, we, we are much very um, vulnerable to um, weakness when we experience any kind of ill health. The next bracha after that, we're going to talk, well, you know what, before we go on, I just want to say for those of you who don't know, and I'm sure most of you on do know, that within the bracha on, um, on refua, we have a place where we can insert the name of somebody who's sick. And I'm sure most of you know this and do this, but in the bracha on refuah, we stop after l'chol makotenu, that Hashem should give a refuah to all of our ailments. And we can add in the prayer, Yehi ratzon l'fanecha, Hashem alokai v'lokea botai. May it be your will, Hashem, my God, and the God of my fathers. Shetishlach mehera refuah shalema, mina shamayim, refuah ta nefesh, refuah ta guf. That you should send a speedy recovery, uh, a refuah uh, from Shemayim, because we said recovery from illness comes from heaven. As much as the doctors and the medicines are the agents of God, we have to understand that healing always comes directly from the source, from God himself, <clears throat> who gives us the illness. Now, of course, there are some illnesses that we create ourselves, right? I mean, or not even illnesses, but for example, the Gemara says, if you catch a cold, 
don't blame it on God. It's because, you know, you went out without a scarf on. You know, if your eating habits, etc., as Rabbi Victor Miller explains, don't blame God for the things that are in your control. But for the things that are not in our control, when things just happen to us, obviously it's very clear that these are ailments coming directly from God. Um, obviously, that's a very simplistic, you know, explanation. There's more to it, but we're not going to go there now. Okay, so we say, and of course, we ask Rafuat Hanafesh Rafuat Hagu that you should cure their soul and their body because the body and the soul are interdependent. They are intrinsically bound up with one another. Our bodies are affected by the state of our souls. And as we said in the last class, in the early olden days, if you were a great person, you didn't go to a doctor when you were sick. You went to a Navi. You went to a prophet to find out what you were doing wrong, which mitzvah you were ignoring, you know, which area of your avodah Hashem was lacking. I never mentioned this, but I, I, I can't remember exactly. I think it's, there was a time period in Jewish history where they had this book of cures and they could look at this book of cures and they could know exactly what to do when they needed to be uh, cured from an ailment. And there was a certain king, I can't remember his name, maybe it was Yechezkel, who decided during the time that he was alive that he was going to bury this book of cures so that nobody would be able to use it. And the, his reason for doing this was he was saying that the Jewish people we're not recognizing that it's Hashem who is the one who cures. They weren't looking to Hashem for help. They weren't raising their eyes up in prayer and to feel it to say, Hashem, save me. Hashem, help me. Hashem, rescue me from my ailments. Rather, they were running to this book and taking whatever the medicine. And this particular king felt that this was lowering their spiritual stature. And so he hid it away for all time. Perhaps in the future when Mashiach comes, they're going to dig it up and we're going to know the cure to all of our ailments. But that is just a, a little uh, snippet of what happened in that period of history. Also, um, when we when we dub in for a person, we always say their mother's name. Why do we use the mother's name? So when we're davening to Hashem for uh, a refua, we are trying to uh, ignite the compassionate side of Hashem. His rachami. And the word rachem, which is the shoresh, the root of the word rachamim, is the word womb. And there is an idea that women are um, given a stronger measure of rachamim because of the, by virtue of the fact that we are the ones who have a, a rachem, a, a womb, and we are the ones who imitate Hashem in creating life. Obviously, Hashem creates ex nihilo from nothing. But we as women are on a very high spiritual level naturally because we have this potential to imitate God and create life, something from something. You know, they actually say about a man that the closest a man could ever get to the exhilaration and spiritual revelation of childbirth is when they have a new Torah thought that nobody else has ever thought of before. An insight into the Torah, that's a complete chiddush that, that was never said before. That is the closest they can get to what a woman experiences by bringing new life into the world. But again, 
We use the mother's name because we want to, uh, we want Hashem's compassion to be aroused. And a woman is a representative of that idea of compassion. A mother's compassion on her young is uh, well known, even in the animal kingdom. Okay. Also, together with this bracha on Rafua, we know that we have a bracha that we can say many times a day, the Asher Yetzar bracha, right? Every time a Jewish person uses the bathroom, every time a Jew leaves the bathroom, he has an opportunity to thank Hashem for the fact that his body is working properly. And this is no small thing. Anybody who's ever had any kind of obstruction, I, I actually just heard a story, a crazy story about a woman in a hospital and uh, the, the nurses had put a catheter in her and she was in excruciating pain for the whole day. She thought she was gonna die. She kept calling them in saying, something's wrong, something's wrong. This was a new mother, okay? And these, uh, you know, these nurses kept saying to her, Yo, the only thing that's wrong is that you're having children too fast and too many, and your body's reacting to it. And if you would stop having children so fast, your body would have a chance to recuperate. Meanwhile, the end of the story was she finally got them to take some kind of x-ray, and they had put the catheter in wrong. So she had been unable to use the washroom for the entire day and night, 24 hours, just after giving birth. So, you know, talk about understanding this bracha, right? Blessed are you, God, or God, King of the universe, who created mankind with wisdom and created within him many inner organs and cavities. It is obvious before your throne of glory that if even one of them were to open or if even one of them were to be blocked, it would be impossible to survive and stand here before you. Blessed are you, God, who heals all flesh and acts wondrously. So every day we have multi multiple times of the day where we can cultivate that God awareness, that God consciousness, which is what a Jew is supposed to be, God obsessed, and take an act which is the most mundane of all acts and elevate it to a very high level by recognizing that our health is constantly in God's hands, and that if God forbid something that was supposed to be open is blocked, or something that was is supposed to be closed suddenly opens, we're in big trouble. And of course, even today with all the medical science and how far we've come, doctors will still tell you that they hardly understand anything about the workings of the body. There are still so many mysteries and miracles that happen in the body that even modern medicine still does not understand. Okay, um, so we're going to go now to the next uh, bracha. I just want to play you this to get us in the mood. You hear it? Okay, if you didn't hear it, it's from Cabaret. Money makes the world go around. It makes the world go around. Oh, you have to do something special to play to play a song. They're just telling me now on Zoom. Okay, something new to learn. 
set up professional audio in audio settings. Okay. Anyway, I'm not going to sing it for you because my voice is not <laughs> too good in the morning. But money makes the world go around. Money, money, money. Money is a very complicated uh, thing in life. It's the ninth bracha. It obviously comes after health because you can have all the money in the world, as we know. But if you don't have good health to enjoy it, it's really not worth very much. Um, and you, it, anyway, human beings have a very complicated relationship with money. We pursue it and we love what it can do for us. And we absorb what our culture teaches that it is actually the secret to happiness. Isn't that what all of the media, the advertisements tell us? But we also know that it can become an obsession that takes away our enjoyment in living and appreciating the present moment. A friend recently sent me a video. You can look it up yourself. It's called The Meaning of Life According to Warren Buffett. And he asked, what's really important? He says, you have to measure your success in life, not by how much you are worth, but by how many people really love you. Because as he says, you can't buy love. You can only have love by being lovable. He said he has a good friend from Auschwitz and even who went through Auschwitz. And he said that 60 years later, she tells him that she still, when she looks at people, when she meets people, the question she asks herself to determine who she really trusts as friends, she asks the question to herself, would she hide me? And Warren Buffett goes on to say, if you have a lot of people who would hide you, then you are successful in life. And he jokes, he says, I know people whose own kids wouldn't hide them. Anyway, <laughs> if you want to see that, you can find it, I'm sure, out there. It's just called Warren Buffett, uh, Warren Buffett on the Meaning of Life, the Meaning of Life According to Warren Buffett. So in America, money and religion, the two hot topics are linked on the dollar bill. Very interestingly, on the dollar bill, right? The biggest avoda zora, the biggest idol worship of all time in our day and age, when people say, you know, we don't have idols today. We don't worship idols today. Well, we know we do worship idols. The idol of money is, uh, has been around since the beginning of time. So our, the founding forefathers of America, who were very religious people, so to speak, put on the dollar bill to let us know the danger of where money can take us, the words in God we trust. Now, this was just a small reminder to people, because let's face it, you know, we can say in God we trust, even when the truth is, yeah, that's all right. But the truth is, is in my money is what I trusted. And that's why I spent so much of my life running after it. You know, they once asked the, Babel, the Babylonians, this is a story in the Talmud, why do you, why do you eat? No, why do you work? And they said, well, we work so that we can eat. And they said, well, yeah, so, and wh why do you eat? And they said, well, we eat so that we can work. In other words, the whole cycle of life is just this pursuit of existing. 
And even when it comes to, you know, living on a higher scale of life and just eating and working, a person can get caught up in this cat and mouse type of running around, you know, thinking that having more material gains is going to make them happier. But we're going to find out what the true um, reason for having prosperity in this world is, according to the Torah and Judaism, which gives us clarity into this very difficult subject. So again, it might say in God, we trust on the dollar bill. It's a beautiful sentiment. But how much do most people really trust God? And how much do most people really trust in their money? It's not so easy to recognize, um, you know, as we said in our Bitachon class, it's easy to give Bitachon lip service, but um, it's much, much difficult, more difficult when we're actually in a situation where we come, uh, we come to realize how little our trust may be in uh, the real things, the, in God, as opposed to, you know, the material things that that we think are our security in life. Of course, we have the whole holiday of Sukkot that brings this point forward. Okay, so Judaism teaches the proper balance, that money is a means to an end and not an end in itself. We're supposed to enjoy the world, but that is not the primary purpose. The purpose of money, of being comfortable, of having what we need, and that's really all we need to do is have enough of what we need. Why? What is the purpose? In order to pursue spiritual pursuits. In order to be able to develop and actualize our potential. And unfortunately, money very often takes us away from those spiritual pursuits, which is the entire goal of why Hashem wants to make us comfortable enough so that we don't have worries and we can pursue these spiritual pursuits. I said this before in a class on Bitachon, that the word de'aga, which means worry in Hebrew, Rav Arya Levine's son, Rav Rafael Levine, Zecher Tzadik Mivracha, told me personally, um, you know, which letter is missing. In the word de'aga, the first five letters of the alphabet are there. He said, but one letter is missing, right? We have the Dalit, Aleph, Gimel, and Hay. And the letter that's missing is the Bet, right? Because he said that Bet stands for Bitachon. When you are lacking in Bitachon, you're going to have a lot of De'aga. You're going to have a lot of worries, okay? Just a beautiful way to remember it. Okay, so I just a personal story about myself. You know, when I was a kid, I was definitely a free spirit. You know, I don't think I was born, I, I was born in 1960, but, you know, I wasn't a hippie, but I think I was a hippie wannabe, or I, or I had that spirit of hippiness in me, and I disdained, you know, social conformities and the race for money, and all the things that, you know, generally Jewish kids grow up with in terms of parents trying to make a good living and make you comfortable, and I, you know, one of the things that I, I used to do just to bug my father, because, you know, a lot of times I'd come home from a friend's house, and the first question my father would always ask me, you know, it didn't matter, all through my teenage, what does their father do? What does he do for a living? You know, and I always felt like, kind of like, what do you care what he does for a living? Like, I felt like he was really asking, you know, what kind of, you know, how much is he, are they worth? What is, what kind of a home do they come from? What, you know, it could be that he wasn't, but in my, you know, hippie mind, it was like, 
what kind of a question is that? What does he do? For so I would, I would answer things like, I don't know. I think he, um, I think he lies on his back and looks for pictures in the clouds. <laughs> I would, you know, just, or, you know, I think he picks dandelions and uh, counts them every day. You know, I would just say things like that because I felt like, who cares? Who cares what he does for a living? Who cares how much money he makes? Another thing that used to bother my father is I would always be talking about how I have to go find myself. You know, I have to go find myself. <laughs> and my father, who probably was a lot like all of your parents, he thought that was the biggest idiocy in the world, you know, that I have to go find myself. And he would say, I'm going to go find myself. Okay. You want me to go find myself? I'm going to leave your mother. I'm going to leave all you five kids. And, and I'm going to leave all the responsibilities of being a dad and I'm going to go find myself, right? So that's how he would um, <clears throat> let me know that he wasn't too happy with that idea of finding yourself. But this all was a little bit of, of a rebellion against, you know, the social conformities of money being so very important in life. And I felt that there were things that were much, much more important that were somehow being ignored. So let's look at the actual bracha now. It's called Birkat Hashanim, the year of prosperity. And I'm just going to read it to you quickly, and then we're going to go over it. Okay. Bless on our behalf, O Hashem, our God, this year. This year. By the way, it's the only bracha that talks about this year. We don't ask for wisdom for this year. We don't ask for... Uh, you know, redemption for this year, but we ask for money about this year. We're talking about the fiscal year. And all its kinds of crops for the best. The tain bracha, of course, we know that there are two things that we say we change between the summer and the winter. In the summer, we say the tain bracha and give us blessing. And in the winter, we say the tain talumatarli bracha, give us dew and rain for a blessing. Al Peneha Adama on the face of the earth. Why the word face of the earth? Visabenu mituvecha and satisfy us from your bounty. Uvareshanatenu kashanim hatovot and bless our year like the best years. Baruchata Hashem Varechashanim. Blessed are you Hashem who blesses the years. Okay, this is the ninth bracha, the ninth number nine. Um, the number nine, the ninth bracha. Hold on one second. I can't remember the connection, but number nine has to do with the word tov, good. Because of course we need parnasa. We need to be taken care of materially in order to be able to thrive spiritually. So, as we said, money is a means to an end and not an end in itself. Oh, no, you know what? So, so why do we ask God to bless this year? When we ask for health or knowledge, we don't say bless this year with those things. So why here? 
So the answer is, is that because when it comes to our Parnassah, we are judged every single year, as we know, on Rosh Hashanah, according, regarding our livelihood. So having what we need helps us to actualize our potential. So we ask God to bless this year so that we can live up to our potential. The words Hashanah Hazot this year also is emphasizing the idea of being in the present, of living in the present, not worrying about tomorrow. It reminds us of the importance of living in the, in the present. The altar of Navardic, a Musar master, would say, even the worst present is far more beautiful than the brightest future. A person must relinquish all his tomorrows for one today, lest he come to relinquish all of his todays for one tomorrow. We know that we spend so much of our time living in the future or living in the past. And this whole revolution of mindfulness is something that Judaism has been teaching forever, which is that we don't know what tomorrow will bring. It says a man who worries about what, a man whose basket is full, but he worries about tomorrow is a man of meager faith. Because we don't know what tomorrow will bring. And that's why this idea of Hashanah Hazot this year is telling us to live in the present. The Talmud in Eruvin 54a says, grab and eat, grab and drink. This world resembles a wedding banquet. It's fleeting. Our time on this world is short. And the message here is that if God gives you financial means, use it today. Don't put it away for a rainy day. Enjoy it today. Now, I'm not a you know financial, uh, um, what's the word, planner. Okay, so don't, this is all on a very lofty level. But the, the, um, the message is clear. And the idea is this. Use your money today for worthwhile causes if God gave you the financial means. Because who knows what tomorrow will bring? How many lives were not saved? How many institutions not built? How many children's lives not improved? Because we are afraid to dip into our savings. My father used to say, money is like manure. You've got to spread it all around to, to make things grow. I think he was a lawyer to a lot of farmers in, in, uh, in St. Catherine, so that might be why, why he had that analogy. But the idea was clear that you have to spread it around, not hold on to it and worry about not having it tomorrow because that's a man of meager faith. Okay. Um, Okay, the next thing we're going to talk about, the et komine tua talitova, that you should give us all kinds of crops for the best and give it on the face of the earth. Al paneha adama, what does the face of the earth mean? So number one, the idea is, is that we're asking for the entire world, the entire globe to experience this blessing of bounty. Because 
all of mankind are interrelated. We know that very well with this pandemic, right? That what happens over there affects me over here and that we want the entire world to benefit from God's bounty, okay? The second idea is we want the blessings to come to us in this world of prosperity. We want it to come from a source in this world and not from our share in the world to come. So this is a very important idea in Judaism. You know, if you go through Tehillim, you see very often that the grabbing of money, the living for money, the living for more and more money is associated with Rashaim, with the wicked, with the people who live only for this world, who think that the game of, of life, the purpose of life is whoever has the most toys wins. And of course, Sadiqim, on the other hand, are always thinking and worrying not about this world and what they have, but they're worrying about their station, so to speak, in the next world. And whatever money that God gives them, they're using to enable them to be able to actualize their spiritual potential. Whether it's using it to give tzedakah, whether it's using it to have the the serenity to be able to sit and learn Torah, which is supposed to be our main occupation in this world, especially as a man, right? The woman is the enabler who helps the men do what their job truly is, right? Whether you're a working man or a learning man, every second, every minute that you spend learning Torah, you're doing what you were created for, the Mishnah tells us. Because the learning of Torah actually were taught is the conduit through which all the bounty in the world comes. So anybody who's doing well financially, according to Jewish thought, if they follow it back to its source, it's the guys who are sitting and learning in kolels all over the world that are the conduit for the bounty in the world being able to spread itself out to the people who are enjoying the material uh, benefits. But somebody who lives only for this world and only for material gain is considered to be wicked. So let me tell you a story about um, Rabbi Hanina Bendosa, the famous Rabbi Hanina, who was obviously on a very high level. He's the one who the Hanukkah story says when they didn't have any oil in the house to light the menorah, he said, go get the vinegar. And his wife, his daughter said, but vinegar doesn't light, dad. And he said, listen, the same God who says oil should light can also say vinegar can light. Just go get, and sure enough, it worked. So this Rabbi Hanina Bendosa was so poor that he would live on carobs from Friday to Friday. One day his wife said to him, how long must we suffer such poverty? Pray that we should be provided with sustenance. Rabbi Hanina prayed. And the form of a hand extended itself from heaven and gave them a table leg of gold. That night, his wife had a dream and she saw the righteous in the world to come sitting at three-legged tables of gold while she and her husband were sitting at a two-legged table of gold. So she got very upset about that. And she said, and, and she asked her husband to pray that heaven take back this golden leg. 
and the golden leg was retrieved from them. The second miracle, interestingly, was considered greater by the Talmud than the first, because when God gives things from heaven, that's natural, but for him to take it back is unnatural. The Lubavitcher Rebbe explains, man's mission in life, and I just think this is so interesting, involves a feat greater than God's creation of the universe. The act of creation meant the formation of a physical reality out of utter nothingness, creation ex nihilo. But when man implements God's will in the world, he in effect reverses the process. He shows um, physical existence to be but a reflection of the all pervasive truth of God. Its formidable mass is now seen as but an insignificant facade to a deeper spiritual reality. So if he creates something out of, so as what God creates something out of nothingness, but man makes nothing of its somethingness. You know what, that's too uh, complicated. Okay. The point is, is we take what is in the world and we make it spiritual. We elevate it to its spiritual Whereas God created the physical world, he took the spiritual and he made it physical. Our job is to take the physical and make it spiritual. Okay. Um, so Rabbi Hanina Bendosa's wife said, I don't want the golden leg in this world. I'd rather save it for the next world because that's where the true reward is. And I was once at a wedding of two very, very wealthy families in New York. I can't even describe the smorgasbord to you. It took up like three rooms, et cetera, et cetera. And they were a very wonderful couple. And I remember underneath, um, underneath the chuppah, the rabbi was speaking to the two couples, to the couple. And he was talking about basically how they both come from largesse and um, giving them a message about that. So the story that he told was of a, a rabbi who lived in a small town in Europe, and he was being offered this incredible job in one of the big cities. And, you know, it was a big shul, and it came with a beautiful home. And his wife was getting very nervous because one of the Jewish ideas is, you know, I don't want to use up my olam haba in this world. I'm worried that if I have too much good in this world, right, that somehow it's going to take away from my olam haba. So she started fretting and saying to her husband, I, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to move there. I don't want to go to this new community because, you know, it's going to take away from our olam haba. So um, her husband turned to her and said to her, you think that that house is olam haba? You think that that house could even compare to what's waiting at Olam Haba? He said, this house is babkas. This is nothing. This is babkas compared to, to, to the treasures and, and the rewards of Olam Haba. So then the rabbi went on to this, to these couple, this couple. He said to them, I, I bless you both that you should have many babkas. Okay, so... We don't say that it's a negative thing to have spiritual, to have physical wealth. But the idea is we have to be careful with it. it. And we're going to talk away. about it. 
because it can it can take us towards actualizing our spiritual potential or very sadly and very often yes it can take us away it can become a curse as opposed to a blessing okay we save a sub oh Another idea of Alpineha Adama on the face of the earth is that our blessings should be close to home. There's a story in Kobos um, Alababos in the duties of the heart in the gate of trust, Dar Bitachon. The story, if I have it here, I think I do. Yeah. Oh. The story tells of a saintly man, a Jewish who travels to a distant land seeking a livelihood. He arrives at a city whose inhabitants were idol worshippers. Fools, he rebuked them. Why do you worship helpless images of wood and stone? Join me and worship the living, all-powerful God who feeds and supports all of mankind. The pagans retorted, your own actions contradict your words. If indeed your God supports all men at all times and in all places, then why did you jeopardize your life by traveling so far to seek your fortune? You should have stayed home and let your God provide for you there. Upon hearing their reproach, the pious man immediately resolved never to leave his land again in order to search for sustenance. And this is what David Amelech had in mind, King David, when he advised, Trust in Hashem, betach Hashem, and do good. Dwell in your own homeland and be sustained by your faith. So they said, listen, you say your God's all powerful. Why are you always traveling and going to the, you know, just wearing yourself out by running to the opposite end of the earth to find Parnassah, when obviously your God could give it to you in a much easier way. Okay. And the other idea of Alpineha Adama is it's a reference to the land of Israel. It's actually a reference to the Garden of Eden from which all goodness flows. The Garden of Eden is again the center of the universe where the first human beings began. And when Adam is exiled, when the first man is exiled, he says to Hashem, you have banished me from the face of the earth. Alpineha Adama. So it's referring to the land of Israel. Okay, the next thing, the Sabenu Mituvacha. It means satisfy us, Mituvacha, from your goodness, from your bounty. Help us to make our Parnasa, help our Parnasa to come through you, Hashem, and not through dishonest means. We don't want to make a living through dishonesty. Because obviously, instead of our making a living, connecting us to the source of all, we are unaligned with Hashem's purpose when we come to try to make a living through dishonest means. Another idea of the Sabinim Tuvecha, bless us from your hands so we don't have to rely on the gifts of others. However, we ask for prosperity with caution. Because again, we said prosperity can be a blessing and it can also be one of life's largest curses. When God punished Adam, he punished Adam by saying, you are going to have to work by the sweat of your brow. You are going to have to kill yourself to make a livelihood now. 
right? The, the earth is going to bring forth thorns and thistles and you're going to have to make it a place that things grow and that you can, and this was a curse. But unfortunately for many people, they take this curse and they live their lives as if it's the biggest blessing. You know, spending too many hours at the office, making money that they don't need, thinking that, you know, they're doing it for future generations when nobody knows where it's going to end up. Mm -hmm. And instead of living life now and using our bounty to actualize ourselves spiritually, to have the serenity to be able to do that, we get confused and we see it as an end in itself. So prosperity can lead to uh, a curse as opposed to a blessing. It can lead to arrogance. Prosperity very much is linked to arrogance, right? We all know those people. They can't talk to you. They can't look at you. They're not interested in you because you're not in their class. You're not worth, you know, I, I know you are who you are by how much you're worth. And that's a pretty sad way to live life and to choose your friends. Also, remember that the more prosperity, the more worries. Property has to be maintained and protected. The Mishnah and Avos tells us he who increases his possessions also increases his worries. There's a great hazard of prosperity. The great hazard of prosperity, another side effect, is it fosters insatiable greed. He who has 100 wants 200, Shlomo HaMelech tells us. Or the Vilna Gaon says materialism is like salt water. The more you drink, the thirstier you get. It's never enough. He who loves money will never be satisfied with money. Mm -hmm. And no one dies without half his desires, without half of his desires fulfilled. Right? I'm sure you've heard that when we come into this world as newborn babies, we come in with our, with our hands clenched. And the rabbis teach us, we're gimme, 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 gimme. But when we leave this world, our hands are open. Because we all know that you can't take anything with you. The only thing you take with you are the way you made other people feel. Or the mitzvot that you did. Or the times that you um, ignored your body. The voice of your body, which is the voice of taking and went with that higher voice of the soul, which is the voice of giving. Okay. Success is realizing that everything we have comes from Hashem and not from our own efforts. And when we recognize that, then there's no negative side effects. God decides on Rosh Hashanah exactly how much you're going to get. And Rav Schwab explains you cannot change it even by a penny. Whatever you're meant to get, that's what you're going to get. We need to talk about that a little bit. Oh my goodness, time's already over. Okay, let me see if I can say a little bit about it. And the last part, and bless our years like the best years. So this is an, an idea of we pray for a year of constant blessing. A blessing that we see throughout the year, not a windfall where, you know, throughout the year we have to skimp and save and then suddenly we have a windfall at the end of the year. We'd rather have it come to us 
you know, in slow drips from the faucet all year long. So that's the idea of having money throughout the year and that blessing. Okay, let me just talk a little bit about um, the end of the bracha and also this idea that our parnasa is uh, determined for us on Rosh Hashanah. So, you know, material goods, materialism, we use the word gashmiut in Hebrew, material goods. It obviously comes from the word geshem because without rain, nothing grows. And rain, of course, comes from Hashem. It's one of the four things that we learned earlier that Hashem holds the key to rain. He holds the key to rain, to childbirth. Um, I can't remember. To parnasa, to livelihood. And the idea is, is that the rain, which by the way, Israel is dependent on rain. They have no other water source except for rain to make things grow. And God did this purposefully because we are a spiritual people living in a spiritual land. And so we always have to look up to Hashem and say, send us rain. We can't rely on water like the Egyptians had the Nile River, which used to to just overflow its banks a few times a year. And they didn't have to worry about praying for anything. The gods took care of it, the gods of the Nile, right? So this was a way of God saying, you are dependent on me. Don't forget it. Um, But back to this idea. So what does it mean that God gives us everything at the beginning of the year? So let's say you're a wicked person. Let's say you're in the book of death. And of course, it's not me. It doesn't mean physical death. Okay. Necessarily. Okay. So let's say Russia is promised very little. He's only going to get a hundred drops of rain. But then during the year, he does tshuva, right? He recognizes the, uh, the badness of his ways and he does tshuva. So what happens? These hundred drops don't change. But these hundred drops of rain, so to speak, will fall in the right places. They'll land in places that are just waiting for that drop of rain and bounty. You know, they're not going to land in the desert. They're going to land in a place where growth comes and is enormous and is bountiful. What about a tzaddik? What about a righteous person? Let's say a righteous person, Rosh Hashanah, gets a thousand drops of rain. But then that righteous person makes a lot of averas, does a lot of sins. So his rain, so to speak, will come at the wrong time, right? When the rain comes at the wrong time of the year, especially in Eretz Yisrael, it can be damaging. Or it comes, but it falls in the wrong places. Or too much falls at the same time. So this is the idea of of, of bounty. We see it in terms of the rain. Another idea is that we're judged on Rosh Hashanah, Basher Husham. Basher Husham means how we are at that time. At that moment, after we finish davening Rosh Hashanah, right? Yom Kippur, the 10 days of tshuva, God judges us as we are then. He doesn't say, well, you know, in six months, she's going to be a tzaddik. Or, you know, in, in four months, she's going to be a rasha. We're judged at that time. Where do we get this from? We get this from Yishmael, right? Yishmael uh, was the brother of, as we know, um, Yitzchak. And he was sent away from home. And the angels came to uh, God and said, what are you letting him live for? 
we see in the future that this this Yishmael, his descendants are going to be murderers. They're going to do a lot of damage to the Jewish people. They're going to become terrorists. They're terrible people. Why do you let him live? And God says, because I'm looking at him right now, and right now he's a tzaddik. Right now he has more mitzvahs than averas. So the idea is that when God decides what we're going to have for this coming year, he looks at as we are now. Now, the question during the year is, do we hold on to what Hashem gives us? How much of it do we lose? Are we able to enhance it? And of course, Hashem can make us lose the money that was allotted to us through all kinds of things, through medical bills, through, God forbid, an accident, an illness. But the idea is, is that no matter how much effort one exerts, exerts, you will not make a penny more than Hashem decides. If a person's decreed that he will be wealthy, it will happen irregardless of his efforts. Because all Parnassah is preordained by Hashem. I know it's very difficult for us to believe. This is back to our Bitachon class because we're brought up thinking that it's our efforts that bring the results. But this is an illusion. This is an illusion. We have to make the effort. And we said that. We have to make the effort. We can't just sit back and expect Hashem to do for us. But at the same time that we're making the efforts, we have to recognize that Hashem is the one who will decide what the results will be. You know, I remember I had a nephew not so many years ago. You know, he was brilliant. He went to the best universities. He, he, uh, he graduated with this, this degree in mining. And the guy couldn't even get a job at Starbucks after he was all finished with, you know, he said, I, I can't get a job. I even tried to get a job at Starbucks and they didn't want me right now. Of course, he's getting a second PhD in some university in Texas. But the point is, is God decides you can go through all the roots of saying, you know, if I get this job, if I get this degree, I'm going to make a lot of money. God decides what is going to be. Okay. Um, let me just end with another idea. Again, Gashmias is a means towards Ruchnias. Gashmias, um, physical well-being, having what we need is to enable us to be able to accomplish spiritually, to actualize our potential. And our true reward is waiting for us in the next world. There's a saying, Schar mitzvah Baha'i al-Maleka, that there's no reward for a mitzvah in this world. There's nothing in this world can ever pay us for a mitzvah. It's a different currency. It's like going on a bus and giving the bus driver $5,000 to pay for a ticket and asking him for change. Okay, there's no currency. There's no such thing as, the, as, as thinking that anything in the physical world could even resemble any kind of pleasure that is awaiting us in the next world for one small mitzvah that we do. And we don't want to get paid in this world. Righteous people worry that if they get too much in this world, they're worried, like that story I told you, that somehow it's taking away from my olam haba. There's even an idea in the Gemara that if 40 days go by in your life and you don't experience some kind of pain, some kind of challenge, some kind of suffering, some kind of, you know, somebody spills the orange juice all over the floor, then you should start to worry. 
because maybe God is giving you all your reward in this world and you don't want it here because this world is fleeting and the next world is eternity. And the reward for a mitzvah is incredible. And that's why we have the question. We read the Shema in the middle of the Shema. God says, listen, if you listen to what I tell you and you do what I say, I'm going to give you all this good stuff. I'm going to give you do in its right time. And I'm going to give you, where, where is it? Um, you know, everything in its right season. I'll give you rain to your land and it's time, the early and the late rains, you'll gather your grain, wine, and oil. I'll give you grass in your fields for your animals. You'll eat and be satisfied. So the rabbis asked the question, what do you mean? God's saying, I'll give you all this good stuff in this world if you do what I say. The idea is God saying, I'll give you everything you need so that you can now be free to be able to pursue your spiritual goals. Yes, of course, we're human. We're physical. We need to eat. We need to feel relaxed and have what we need and that's the greatest blessing is to have what you need so you can pursue even abraham maslow who wasn't a religious guy right a jew of course the greatest highest part of his triangle of needs is self-actualization which you can only have after all your physical is taken care of but how much do we need to be able to say okay it's enough now i can focus on my spiritual Unfortunately, we get distracted, we get confused. Just the last point, the idea of the Jewish people in the desert. We ask Hashem, you know, we should be satisfied with a little bit. Give us enough that we'll feel satisfied, not just physically, but even spiritually. Okay, um, this bracha, by the way, was said by the angels, the last part, Baruch Hashem Hashanim, by the angels who, um, when they saw what happened to Yitzchak. So Yitzchak, Abraham's son, was called an Ola Tamima. He was about to be shechted, slaughtered, right, on the Akedah. And of course, God saves his life just at the last moment. But he was always seen as a pure sacrifice. And so one of the restrictions that he had was he was not allowed to leave Eretz Yisrael, which is the holiest land. He wanted, when there was a famine there, to do like his father did and go down to Egypt, to go somewhere where the, there were greener pastures. And God tells him, no, you are different. Yitzchak had to stay in Israel during the time of famine. He had this poor plot of farmland which yielded a hundred times its productivity. And the idea was that God blessed that little piece of farmland and of course, beyond what it would normally create. And the idea here is that very often people think they go, people go places, Jews live in places because they expect that there they're going to be successful financially. And they do this at the expense of their children's education, at the expense of children growing up in a Jewish community, at the expense of giving their children proper chinuch and being part of a community. They'll choose, they'll compromise their spirituality in order to make a living. 
Okay, I know we're almost done, but I just want to finish this last idea. When we left Egypt, we lived in the Midbar. And this was really an educative setting that God wanted us to learn this lesson. We lived in the Midbar. We're told that we had manna, we had mun, that every day came down from heaven. We did not have to work. Our clothing grew on us like our skin, right? We didn't have any uh, dry cleaning or laundry. God was basically putting us back in the Garden of Eden conditions and saying, I want you to live a completely spiritual life. I want you to recognize that this is the ideal. And this will be the ideal when Mashiach comes, by the way. That if we don't begin the process now of making ourselves into enjoying spirituality and making ourselves, um, you know, more able to live as souls, so to speak, with soul pleasures, it will be painful for us when Mashiach comes. Very much like Shabbos, right? If Shabbos is horrible for you because it's a day of not being able to do, well, guess what? Shabbos is 160th of Olam Haba. So if you can't get through 24 hours of Shabbos in this world, it's not going to be fun in the next world either. So again, the more we acclimatize ourselves to a spiritual life. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not easy. The Jewish people in the Midbar hated it as well. Okay. And it took them 40 years, you know, and they were complaining throughout, right? The, the, the horrible thing about living on such a spiritual level was that people knew exactly where they were holding spiritually by where the man fell right? If you were living on a very high spiritual level, you didn't have to do anything to get the money. It fell right outside your tent. But if you were, oy, 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 you know, not so good that week, you had to go down the block and around the corner and finally find your money, you know, somewhere behind a tree and bring it home and schlep it home to everybody. You knew very clearly spiritually, whether you had a good week or a bad week or a good day. even. And God let you know, and the people didn't like it. They said, this is really, this is a really hard level to live on. But they were very, very much living in the spiritual world with a body, right? I have a body. I am a soul. Now, what happened when we left the desert and we went into Eretz Yisrael? So this was a real danger because now this very spiritual people are going into the land. The manna stopped. the, The clothing growing on you stopped. And now they were going into a very physical existence where they would have to plow and sow and water and pray for rain, et cetera, et cetera, in order to be able to survive materially. And the reason we had this testing in the desert for 40 years is because God was telling us, I'm going to take you into a land where you are going to have to work hard, where you're going to have to make things grow and they don't grow so easily there. But this is the danger. Are you going to remember as you're working and sweating that ultimately it's my blessing. It's my rain that makes things grow. It's what I decide the results are. You're going to put in your efforts, but are you going to realize that all of your results, all of the things that you accomplish come from me? That will be the test. How well you remember in the desert the lessons from the desert that everything comes from me, but you have to pay the tax now, right? We go back to the 
the idea of bitachon, that we have to pay the tax. The tax was put upon us because of a negative thing, because of Adam Harishon, right? Looking away from God, eating from the fruit, giving into his body, etc. The delights of the body, the pleasures of the body. And so God says, this is your test. Live in a physical world, in a physical body, to do and to create and to bring home, uh, you know, bring home the bacon, no pun intended, right? But, but the kosher bacon. Bacon, by the way, I learned is actually a, a part of the meat, not a, a tray thing. It's, there's the bacon part of the meat. It could, you could have bacon on a kosher cow. I learned this at that fancy restaurant in Eglinton because I was upset. They had the word bacon on the menu. I was like, why do you have the word bacon on this menu of this kosher restaurant? And they explained to me, the chefs, that, well, bacon is a part of the meat, a part of a cow, part of a meat. Okay. Julie, can you mute yourself? I'm going to mute myself in a minute. Okay. Anyway, this is the point. This is the danger of Parnassa. Of course, we want it. We want God to give us everything. And he wants to give us everything. And he wants us to be satisfied. You should eat and be satisfied. And you should bless your God. By the way, interesting idea. The rabbis are the ones who instituted brachas before we eat, right? That we say a bracha before we eat. But the Torah is the one that says we, that instituted that we have to say a bracha after we eat. Why is this? Because human nature is that when you want something, right, you don't have it and you want it and you have to like do something to get it, you'll do what you have to do. You know, gimme, gimme God, I'll say the bracha, now I can eat it. But once you've been satiated, once you've been given what you've got, that's when we forget God. That's when we decide we're good and we're good on our own. So the Torah had to had to make us required to say a bracha after we're satisfied, after we're satiated, because that's when we forget God. Yeshurun waxed fat and kicked is one of the uh, psukim that come up in the Torah over and over again. That when we become too complete, too satisfied, that when we end up chasing the dollar bill you know, and not trusting in the true uh, security of God, that's when all kinds of things can take us in the wrong direction. Our money is simply a means for us to be able to pursue our spiritual goals, right? Torah scholars are willing to give up material things because the reward for sitting and learning Torah, which feeds the entire world, is an incredible reward in the next world. And they'd rather give up the pleasures of this world and they don't feel they're giving up because they're experiencing the pleasures of this of the next world in this world. They don't feel they're giving up. I once read an article about uh, written by a yeshivasha woman who said, don't pity me when you see me driving around in my beat up van with 10 kids screaming in the back. Don't pity me, I chose this life. I'm happy. I want this life. You know, while you're driving around in your Lexus and you're saying, I nebuch, nebuch, nebuch. You know, don't nebuch me. I made my choice, right? I, I'm giving up certain pleasures of this world because I feel that I'm gaining 
the pleasures of the next world in this world. Okay? So thank you so much for listening. And God willing, we should all be blessed with bounty and everything that we need in order that we could actualize ourselves in the true way, in the spiritual way. Thank you so much. Thank you. Very Thank nice. you.